All right, everybody, we're here at uh, NASA waiting for the next uh, SpaceX launch. As you can tell, we've got some Saturn V rockets behind us. No, no, no. Wrong show. We're here for Disrupt TV live from Kennedy Space Center, and we've got three awesome guests. We're going to go in reverse order. They're going to introduce themselves and tell us where they're calling in from and what they're talking about. Vikas, all yours. What are you talking about today, and where are you dialing in from? Great. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm Vikas Shah. I'm the chief executive of Swisscott Group, and we invest in a whole bunch of technology scale-ups. And I recently published my first book, Thought Economics, and I'm calling from Manchester in England. All right. Thought Economics. All right. Cecile, where are you dialing in from, and what are we talking about today? Hi, I'm Cecile Moulard. I'm co-founder and CEO of Mixer. I'm dialing from Malibu, California, oh, and I'm going to talk about the power of trust and belonging in at work. All right. And of course, we've got Saul Kaplan. Where are you calling in from? What are you talking about? Hey, Ray. I'm in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I'm a hopeful innovation junkie, so I'm going to talk about transformation. How do we go from tweaks to transformation coming out of this pandemic? Awesome. Well, hey, everybody, welcome. Thank you for being here. As folks know, this show is sponsored by Robots and Pencils and IFS. And more importantly, it's also built for you. Uh, all your thoughts, all your comments and everything drive this show and make it possible. And we're going to have Elle do the honors. All right, Elle, all yours. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the CEO founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and his new book, which you can pre-order now, it's officially launched next month. Everybody wants to rule the world, surviving and thriving in a world of digital giants. Ray's a regular technology business uh, contributor on TV, Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. He's, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks, Bala. Um, more importantly, I'm here also with my co-host, Bala Ashar. He's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful twists, tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But it's not about us. It's about our awesome guests. And who do we have to kick it off today? Uh, one of our favorite people for Ray and I and our, and our audience, Saul Kaplan is the founder and chief catalyst of the Business Innovation Factory, BIF, and author of Business Model Innovation Factory, How to Stay Relevant When the World is Changing. Uh, Saul started BIF in 2005 with a mission to enable business model innovation. BIF partners with companies to design, prototype, and commercialize. Prior to BIF, Saul served as the executive director of the Rhode Island Economic Development Corp and as the executive counselor to governor on economics and community development. Prior to his state leadership, Saul served as senior strategy partner in Accenture's health and life science practice and worked broadly throughout the pharmaceutical, medical products, and biotechnology industry. Saul is also the founder and chief catalyst of Luna U. Biff introduced Luna U in 2020. Luna U is a personalized well-being platform empowering women 
to improve their own maternal health outcomes with access to well-being coaches and to information skills, social connections needed to improve well-being. And all of this done remotely, which is what an incredible timing, Saul and team. <laughs> it's a, there's never been a more important time than now for Luna U. You can follow Saul. He's an amazing follow on Twitter at SCAP5, S-K-A-P-5. Welcome back, Saul, to Disrupt TV. Hey, Val and Ray. I got to come on this show now. You guys have gotten so famous. This is the way I have to talk to you. Uh, so it's great, to, it's great to see you and always come uh, great to mix it up with you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, you're on mute, Ray. And we're so excited to have you here, Saul. And it's it's just wonderful. I mean, Biff turned 16. I was lucky enough to attend ah. a few of these live. He turned 16 in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, it, it was, as folks might know, the Business Innovation Factory ah. was was Ted before Ted. I mean, uh, it was the original yeah. Ted's original talk. Uh, it was super inspirational. Ted actually and speaks at Biff. Just, just FYI, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And and so I, I think one of the things that we wanna hear from you is really like, I mean, this was where transformation got going. Uh, what happened? What did you learn in the middle of the pandemic? How does transformation happen in the middle of a pandemic? And I know you were super active in that process. Well, you know, I'm obsessed with uh, transformation, which I, uh, I, dis I distinctly say is different than incremental change and improvement. And I thought I knew a little bit about transformation, having worked in the space my whole career. You know, Biff is all about how to make that safer and easier to manage. We built a methodology. We did 70 projects over those 16 years. And of course, we held an amazing summit that you guys were part of, spoke at several uh, times. I thought I knew transformation, but you know what? Uh, this pandemic uh, has, uh, I didn't know transformation at all. I mean, uh, in the last year, right, I have learned more about what it really means to transform, right? When the constraints are clamped on and you have no choice but to transform, it has been amazing to see how people, organizations, communities uh, have responded to that. The negative part of that is it's sad because so many people and organizations and communities were not ready. They hadn't built the superpowers that we in your community have been working on for the last 20 years, right? Human-centered design, rapid prototyping, new ways of storytelling and engagement, how to use digital not to make things incrementally better, but to open up entire new ways. And I wish we had been more ready. It's been really sad to see how many people have been in really deep trouble and pain uh, by it. But the other side of that coin is the amazing optimism from all of the workarounds, new approaches, people that rose to the occasion, organizations and companies you know, that really busted through and realized that we're going to need new business models if we're going to thrive in the 21st century. So there's a lot of lessons uh, to be learned from that. You know, one, to make sure that we're building a world and an economy that everybody sees themselves in so that we don't leave people behind, but also to take advantage of new technologies to do what you guys have been preaching and building communities around. 
right? Digital is a huge enabler of these futures that we want, and it's up to us humans now to start to render them uh, and get on with solving the real social challenges that we have. And I'll stop there. I, I know you got lots of different questions that you want to you want to throw at me. Go for it. Well, you're the best community builder I know, bar none. Uh, yep. You're 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 a committed educator. Uh, you're active on many channels. You're a prolific writer. You're active on social media. Uh, you're on Twitter. You're hosting Clubhouse discussions around important topics. You're one of the most accessible CEOs I know. Um, and uh, it, you, you, again, you write a lot uh, uh, because the best way to learn is to teach. And I know that, you, again, you're a prolific educator. Your latest article you wrote about designing for emergence. And you say in this article, social systems challenge challenges uh, require social system solutions. We can't catalyze, uh, we can't analyze our way to social system transformation. It's a generative act. We need, we have to design for its emergence. What if we can design for the emergence of new social systems to equitably empower people, improve lives and sustain the planet? And my favorite, and it's a long read, it's a very in-depth uh, read on designing for emergence. But my favorite sentence in the whole post is, I used to think that technology is the biggest force for change. I now think that tech is the catalyst and enabler, but the biggest force for change is a proliferation of self-organized, purposeful networks. Self-organized, purposeful networks. I wanna learn more about Luna U because I work with innovators daily at Salesforce, and I believe Luna U is the best example of designing for emergence and the best example of self-organized, purposeful networks. So can you talk to us about Luna U and where was that aha moment pre-pandemic where you realized this could be the most important project in your lifetime and the most important work that BIF has ever tackled in its 16 year, year prestigious history? Man, did I say all of that? Holy you did Lord. say all of that. <laughs> you did, you did. Oh my God. You, your uh, writing is unbelievable. By the way, I want to promote your next book. So I'm throwing the gauntlet <laughs> out there, Saul. Anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, let me, I love what you just did because you, you're forcing me to begin at the end, what we're doing today. You know, rather than do what I always do, which is give you the long-winded wind-up, you know, and all the things that underlie it, all the work we did over all these years, right, to learn how to think this way, to build the tools, to learn how to design new business models that are that can emerge as opposed to the models I learned how to build with my MBA, right, you know, which was top-down you know, predict the future, go raise money, you know, and then execute your way to it, right? What I have learned along the way is that that's not how new business models emerge. It's not how we're going to fix these social challenges we have. We have to design for emergence. We have to imagine a different future, and then we have to stand it up first at a small scale. So all these people that are obsessed with scale and all these venture capitalists that only want to invest, you know, in, you know, the unicorns, right? It's, that's not how it's going to work. The way it's going to work is we have to allow business models to emerge that will grow organically, that we can't predict the future. All we can do is enable the emergence of a better future. And so the example from today, Luna U, is our self-initiated project 
to bring this point to ground, to use the tools that we developed at BIF for the last 16 years. Luna U is a platform that we developed to solve the maternal health crisis in America. Right. Just briefly, uh, a lot of people know about this now. It's gotten a lot. Uh, it's been in the news, you know, uh, uh, everywhere. Right. In America, we are the worst performing high income nation in the world at maternal health, whether you define it as the health of the mother or you define it as the health of the baby. We're the worst in the in the high income nation world right how can that be and then when you dive into that and you start to look at the statistics the biggest burden of that right and the worst outcomes are in black and latina women populations sometimes three times the amount of serious morbidity and mortality women die right how can we live in a country like that and it's very easy to understand right pregnancy is not a disease our healthcare system was designed architected all the digital all the money goes into making us a better and better system to treat disease it was not designed for prevention which we've learned the hard way during this covid crisis and it was not designed for well-being luna u is a model that is a digital platform that allows that is built around the pregnant woman, not healthcare system, not the institution, not the doctor, the woman. All the data models, all the use of technology, same technologies that the medical system is using to make incremental improvements. We're using it to transform a model, to transform the system that produces better maternal health outcomes. We started at a small scale, right? You know, because you were involved. You know, we, did a, we did a prototype with 30 women in my home state of Rhode Island. We just signed an agreement. We'll be able to announce it publicly with the major insurer here in my own home state that has about you know, more than half of the Medicaid population, so the majority of the population we're talking about, and we're going to scale it to 400, and we've already started, right? And it's amazing what we're learning every single day as we scale up the model. I now have the confidence to build the plan to take that national. So it starts to look more like a plan to scale it, more like a traditional business plan. And now we can start to say, what structure should it have? How should we form the capital to be able to do it? But it's basically a way of modeling the future, starting today in the real world and enabling it to emerge and scale organically, right? So that it can then fit in and hopefully change the medical system because as more and more women get access to this platform, it'll put pressure back on the medical system to pay more attention to wellness and to integrate sick care with well care and prevention at the core. Amazing. I'll stop there in Amazing. terms of the expertise. There's three lessons there before Ray asks the questions. I just want to summarize. One, this is an example of designing for emergence. Second is human-centered design. Remember, Saul said it's designed for the woman going through the pregnancy. So all the decisions, smart workflows, combinatorial use of technology built in the platform is designed with the mother to be in mind. And the last thing is 
Luna Yu didn't start with obsessing on scale. They obsessed about a positive outcome, which again, in certain populations is three to 10 times worse for the underserved population. So Saul wrote an article about scale and it was our obsession with scale must end. What do you mean? Our obsession with scale is getting in the way of unleashing the potential of the 21st century. We're so fixated on scalability, we've taken our eye off of delivering value at every scale, including the most important scale of one, and that's the pregnant woman. So again, scale, designing for emergence and human-centered focus are the lessons learned in that four-minute uh, overview that you gave, and I want our readers or our audience to, to really uh, walk away with that. Sorry, Ray, go ahead, please. No, 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 those are great points. And I think the biggest thing that we can learn from this is really that you also have to have a long-term mindset, right? When you think about population management, population in those areas, you know, it's so important to think about long-term health outcomes over short-term gains, which have been pretty much reimbursement rates. I mean, that, that's the issue. And so to take that even further yep. out, Saul, I mean, how are you building trust in the system on the data, trust in the system in terms of, you know, delivery of patient outcomes? Like how, how do you design for that as well to make sure all parties yep. Uh, feel that they're respected, they're trusted, and, and they're heard. Oh. So, Yeah, and that's everything, Ray. You're absolutely right. When you, when you design for, in this case, the woman, but we can substitute any customer, right, you know, or anyone you're trying to design for, the trick here is to see it through the lens of the customer, not through the lens of the enterprise, because the minute you, you, you constrain the innovation space, to only those things that fit within today's business model, you know, it doesn't work. So to your question, everything we do is being designed to, to emerge tracking the outcomes, creating the causal link between engagement in the LunaU platform and the clinical and economic outcomes, because I believe that every model has to have a way to create and deliver value, but it also has to have a way to capture value. If the economics don't work, it won't scale, mm -hmm. right? So you have to disrupt not only the value creation and the delivery, but we also have to look at, look, this is the way today's venture capital works. We, this is how social capital works over here. These are arbitrary silos. If we want social systems change, what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna to have to learn new ways to finance different stages of development. How do we finance for the emergence of new social systems? People say they want to change the culture. Culture changes one behavior at a time. It doesn't change top down. If you want to design for a new culture, a new model, a new way of working together, you have got to create that at a small scale. It's like the world building that the game designers do. They design a world it populates, it starts to emerge. You can't predict what's gonna happen in those worlds, right? But you can learn from how the world operates and you can keep adding new capability, new tools, new incentives. 
That's what the game designers do. How does that work in the real world when it's a social system, when we're the players, right? And it doesn't matter what sector we're in, for-profit, sure. non-profit, public, private. We're all trying to work together to solve these problems. We can imagine new models. We can render them to work at, at small scale today, and we can create the conditions for them to emerge. I believe that that's how transformation is going to happen. And every time we try to change any enterprise or system top down, right? I don't know. I, I don't know how you look at it, but at my age, I look back and say, we haven't been very successful at changing these large complex systems from the top down. It's time to start enabling the emergence of new models and then welcoming people to those models and allowing them to scale. They start to feel more like movements than they feel like boring companies. <laughs> yeah, no, every brand is activating a movement, activating a community. That's where we see folks doing that. And uh, this is an extension of that. I, my, my comment, my last comment uh, is uh, because we ran out of time and we could spend an hour talking about this. Uh, you wrote an article about regeneration. And I think it's incredibly important when you talk about focusing less on scale, more about you know designing for emergence. Another piece of that puzzle, which is a beautifully written article about regeneration, I uh, will we'll put the link in in our um, you know in, in in our in our in our chat message so that our audience can can read the post. Saul, thank you so much, and uh, ah. thank you for uh, working on a project that I think is uh, incredibly meaningful. And you know, again, my company believes business is the greatest platform for change. And what you're doing and your team is doing at Luna U and Biff is just incredibly important and impactful. I Thanks, agree. We're here with right. Yeah, we're here with Saul Kaplan, founder and chief catalyst at the Business Innovation Factory. And you can follow him on Twitter at SKAP5 and check out the uh was a Halogen Collider that was in behind you. That was a pretty awesome tweet. Uh, anyways, I think I was looking at that earlier. So <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Happy Friday. Oh my! Wow. Was that twenty yeah. minutes? Yeah, that, he's <laughs> he's, uh, he's one of the top business model innovation experts I know. Um, and speaking of expert big thinkers, uh, our next guest is Cecile uh, Mola, the founder and CEO of MixR, the only platform dedicated to scaling trust and belonging at work. Talk about another incredible, important mission that all businesses need to have, established trust and sense of belonging. Prior to founding Mixar, uh, Cecile held many widely regarded positions and led ventures of her own, including the launch of Amazon's French subsidiary. In addition, uh, she served as an active board member of both public and private organizations such as AXA Group and Decathlon. You can follow Cecile on Twitter at C-E-C-I-L-E-M-O-U, L-A-R-D. Uh, welcome, Cecile, to Disrupt TV. Thanks a million. And I'm very grateful that L put Saul right before, because I'm like still jumping from everything that, that I've heard. And it's so connected. Um, I, I'm, I'm, it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having <laughs> Thank me. You. Thank you so much. You know, we're so excited to have you here, and, and we really wanted to learn a bit about Mixer and, and what you guys have been doing with uh, the company. But more importantly, like I wanted to start by saying, did you take a page from Colin Breyer and uh, Bill Carr and actually work backwards and write your press release first in the true Amazon style when you started your startup? Well, actually, kind of, yes. 
you, you know, when it's it's interesting, this Amazon um, culture, there's so many good things about it, also so many bad things about it. But one thing that I really remember is this one, mm. where you get to first, when you want to create something, write a PR release for, yes. you know, in five years from now, what's going to happen? How are you going to, you want people to talk about what you're doing? And it's so powerful. Mm. I'm doing that for everything. Yeah, it's oh, hey, when you did that, did you start and what business problems were you addressing? I'd love to know what that press release looked like um, in terms of the concept behind Mixer. Well, the biggest be, the biggest business problem definitely was at the point when we created Mixer, but now is even much bigger, was about retention and mm. well-being in the workplace. And so if you look at numbers, the, the business case for what we do is about a $2 trillion problem that we're solving with Mixer. And the way to solve it is different. What we do is we believe that if we are able to rebuild trust and belonging within the organization among the employees of that organization, then you can tackle, you can get all the resources the organization needs in order to be ready for change when it happens. That makes a lot of sense. At my company, trust is our number one core value. And it has been the six years I've been an employee consistently every year, we assess what are our most important core values. And we have four at Salesforce. And the number one is, is trust followed by customer success, innovation and equality. Um, so it's clearly, uh, I think we, you know, my company, we understand the importance of trust and sense of belonging. I'd love to have your uh, uh, view in terms of why it's so important. And then follow-up question to that is how can companies uh, scale trust yeah. and belonging? You know, the challenge is, and, and that challenge is more this year or certainly since the pandemic than perhaps ever in our lifetime. Yeah, and, and so thank you for asking that question because, you know, trust and belong seems like, seems like a real big problem um, to solve. And the way we looked at it is trying to find something kind of simple that we can build on and scale. Sorry, Saul, we, we try to scale. But really the idea is to say, if I share an interest with you and if I can grow that first block of trust because I share this interest with you. If I can grow that, you know, uh, um, let, let it emerge mm -hmm. as a community, a small, a, a small community within the workplace around the center of interest. If I can do that and if I can scale that, then I'm onto something really big. And again, going back to what Saul was saying, he was mentioning the self-organized, purposeful network. Mm. Well, that's what we're trying to do within yep. cooperation. This is our goal. So we, we took this big, you know, subject of trust and belonging and kind of boiling down to just one thing, organize communities around center of interest within the organization, give all the ways for people to to be empowered to organize instead of being of being organized sure. by the organization. So we kind of revert that. That's how we disrupt the thing. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. And the CHROs or line of business leaders that you work with, do they have certain timelines and expectation in terms of how quickly they can improve retention or how do they how do they measure this trust and belonging? Yeah. You know? yeah. So so first of all, I think we in some ways we helped by what's happening. The momentum is huge. Sure, sure. And one of the things that Saul mentioned, which the lack of prevention and the fact that we're focusing always on solving issues when they're here instead of looking at them before we even have the issue. Um, now you see big health health company, healthcare company looking at that and say, how can we prevent it? Yeah. And what's really interesting is that we've been approved by Cigna for their uh, improved, they called it the improvement, um, health improvement fund. We've been in, approved there. So they're looking at us as a way to really practically giving tools to employees to solve their own problems in some ways. Great. And so it's, it's, so we, we, that's how you, you measure what we do. You measure by, the well-being turnover you measure by, um, you know, diminishing uh, burnout. You measure by improving mental health and diminishing um, turnover, sure. pretty much, and and increasing uh, engagement. And you use that trust. I mean, Cecile, use that trust to do a lot of things. I mean, you're. I mean, I know you guys from your ERGs, the employee resource groups that people use you for, um, but it's also for breaking down silos or engagement or onboarding or psychological safety. I mean, this is a pretty multi-purpose platform, but it starts with that element of trust that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and I think if you want to take the long-term view, you can look at what we're doing um, and the way I'm, I'm thinking how organization will be run tomorrow they they will need this kind of a team culture and approach where you know it's about organizing people around a specific task and it's mm -hmm. about deciding and implementing it's kind of a it, it's top down we need that okay but no. we also need to let something kind of a lot more organic grow and mm -hmm. this is what we're doing those communities at work around interest that's the role they have. It's about experiencing something together. We, I know Ray, you you're into you you've worked a lot around. Uh, you wrote a lot about customer experience. We need to really think about what type of experience we want our employees to have at work, and how the fact that they experience they have those experience, how will that benefit the company in terms of creativity, mm. in terms of ability to, um, you know, uh, even even the what, what I'm also interested in is that if you feel trust in, at the office, mm. and if you feel good at the office, you bring that back home. Sure. And then suddenly you have this emergence again, going back to solve this emergence of a new way all together to look at how you can contribute. So trust, uh, Stephen Covey says, trust is the one thing that changes everything. Yes. Yeah. And this is, I, you know, we try to operationalize that at well, work. What a, well, one of the things I was trying to, 
One of the things that we are seeing a lot is as we're going back to work, we're seeing different forms of work. And that hybrid work environment is creating new types of communities as well. And I think important on your end is really how, how are companies lever like using that opportunity to create a brand new type of environment that they might not have created before. Because it's a once in a generational opportunity as we see the shift in terms of where work occurs and how people are motivated. Yeah, and, and we know um, that about 40% of the workforce is planning to leave uh, the, their current company. So companies need to do something about it. I mean, it's not now they're in a situation where they cannot wait longer. They have to do something different. And so they're looking into what we're doing with this angle. Okay, we do have all the productivity tools that we needed, and we were so happy to have them during the pandemic. Now we need to go human design, human-centric. What can we add? How can we kind of recreate a sense of the, the office, the workplace? How can we have that magic happen when people are away, when someone is in his office at home and someone is in her office at the office. How do we recreate a platform for people to be able to create this serendipity and, and ability to talk to each other about something that is not necessarily business, but will have an impact on how they're working every day. And so this is what we're after. That's amazing. Well, it's so important uh, because for so many of us for the last 14, 15 months, office and home have been the same. So, you know, and if you don't feel trusted and you don't have that sense of belonging at work, which happens to be, in my case, my dining room, uh, it could impact my psychological well-being. And, you know, men mental health is health. So if you don't feel good about yourself, it's really hard to distinguish between work life and home life in the last 15, 16 months. And many geographies, like my colleagues in India, will continue to, you know, uh, have this challenge for, you know, weeks and months ahead. Um, this week, the labor, Department of Labor uh, pointed out there's, I think, 9.2 million open jobs in the U.S. Uh, I think it's the largest number since we've been tracking uh, the number of open positions. So there's uh, certainly a lot of opportunity to recruit incredible talent. Our forward-looking companies that use Mixer leveraging your solution, not just for retention, but perhaps use your platform and technology to recruit this amazing pool of talent that's available to join their companies. So, so um, what they do is they use it to onboard okay. people. And that's a huge piece of the, um, you know, the, the, the pyramid. We know that if you don't onboard properly your, your people, your employees, the chance that they leave early in the process, that what we call the voluntary turnover, sure. is growing and growing. Wow. So they in the in the hiring process, you the onboarding piece is becoming so so important. It used to or you know always been, but now that we are not necessarily in the office, it becomes even more uh, important and even more complex to operate. So onboarding is really important. And it's also why it's interesting that we see some universities, you know, um, wanting to, to try Mixer for their early dropout. Um, they have this huge, big problem on campus sure. where you have the, the first year student right. after two to three months, they just 
drop out because they feel so lonely, so completely, um, you know, uh, lost. And so if uh, those students had communities they could connect with around something that is important to them, it would, it smooth, would smooth out the whole process. Same thing with employees. When you get into, when you first arrive in an organization, you want to start meeting people that you can have, you know, connection with not necessarily people from your direct team. And so onboarding is a huge piece of how people are using us. Absolutely. And first year retention in universities is massively important. Studies show if you can help the student successfully get past the first year, they're far more likely to graduate with a degree. So very, very important work in higher education, for sure, for sure, which is an industry that's being massively disrupted. So uh, there should be a strong appetite in terms of building, building communities. And my lesson learned listening to you is that individual can be the spark, but the flame, the heat, and the energy for sustained momentum in terms of trustworthiness and sense of belonging comes from the community, which I think is important for business leaders listening to our conversation. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, no, when we talk about from onboarding to getting students in place to, you know, worry about mental health, I mean, this is going to be a very, very different environment when we get back to work. And what I really want to know is any lessons learned from your clients, what people are seeing, uh, what techniques are working uh, to keep people motivated. I mean, for a lot of folks, it's been, you know, they've been working full steam 120% of what they normally do. And, and it's almost like they're at the end of the marathon. They just want to collapse. I mean, it's been a long journey. Uh, so, so what are people doing? What, what are some techniques? What are some best practices? Practices. So, first of all, what we see is that every company has a completely different uh, way to look at it. They, um, a lot of them are using surveys and trying to understand the state of mind of their current, their, their employee uh, today. They're trying to, they're really trying their best to find the right number of days at the office versus number of days at home. They're, they're, they're working on, so they're really into the how we're going to do it. And it's, it's still for me very focused on the practicalities of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, for those who started or maybe had a culture of, um, you know, more employee experience focus culture before COVID, they're much more advanced and they're really using this opportunity to try uh, things like Mixer and, and offer them to their, as an employee benefit. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're using, they're really trying to enlarge the options of employee benefits. I see a lot of companies really looking at those with a different eye, trying to, uh, for example, add, um, what did I see? Yeah, like people adding um, um, mentor mentorship or, or um, tutoring for uh, you know, children of their employees. Because when you're home and if your children are around, how, it, how are you going to organize yourself? So we see companies being a lot more open to new type of benefits. And the, the, I think the main thing for me is I see CHRO and people in the, the HR environment getting much closer 
to the strategic pillars. Now it's becoming, they're really understood, they kind of understand that HR and how we um, hire, retain, develop people, it's, it's strategic for companies. And you see those people going to now becoming part of the um, executive committee. Sometimes they were not before that. So we see a lot more focus mm. in general on, on these people uh, thing, which I think is awesome. Um, it's, it's very important. So we see a lot, we see so many people are very creative. As Sol was saying, it's, it's amazing to see how when you're confronted to something completely new, you find resources and ideas and that you would have never thought about before. So it's the time for all those corporations to really think through who they want to be in the next five to 10 years. It's, it's such an amazing opportunity. And those we will not use that opportunity, we probably will not be there in the next five years. Uh, because it's such a huge change. It's amazing to see Mixer used to career path individuals because you have more visibility in terms of individuals' likes, dislikes, thoughts, vision, yeah. commitments. And so it's it's not it's beyond retention. It's used to really shape the path and help individuals uh, gain more prominence within a business. Um, I've always felt a social business allows you to see and hear ideas in the fabric of the organization. So it's not the best titles that win, it's the best ideas that win. And those ideas can come from single contributors. So again, the power of community inside of business can, has so many demand, positive dimensions. Um, and in this case, not just retention, but also career pathing individuals, which is great. Yeah, what I love, if I may add something here, because I think it's a very interesting subject is that when you start empowering people to create community and when they do so, you see a different type of leaders uh, showing up in the organization. Uh, they're usually much younger and you do have a lot of female. So you kind of gen Z and, that's a great thing. and female. <laughs> and we love that. Yeah, we and love what's that. interesting is that suddenly they have a way to really be seen by everyone yeah. in the corporation and to be rewarded for that. So what, what I see is also a change in what is it to be a leader in the organization. Someone who is able to create a community and have like, I don't know, 100, 100 people in that community is a leader. How do you recognize that? What do you do with it? It's such an amazing power. That is amazing. That's you know, great. this is amazing. I think we can go on for... We could go on for hours on this topic. It's one of the most important topics as we reopen, and hopefully people are paying attention. You can follow Cecile Moulard, founder and CEO of Mixer, on Twitter at C-E-C-I-L-E-M-O-U-L-A-R-D. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so Thank much you for so having me. You're terrific. Thank you so much. We'll see you back in the green room. All right. That's amazing. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. This is this is where we leave the you know the best for last uh, baseball <laughs> analogy. Our guest comes and hits a grand slam home run. Uh, no and, pressure. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, no pressure. It's our privilege uh, to have Vikas Shah, MBDL, uh, Vikas is an entrepreneur, an author, investor, and philanthropist. Vikas started his business, his first business, at age fourteen, and is now a CEO of Swisscott. Alongside being a venture investor in a number of businesses internationally, 
Vikas is a non-executive board member of the UK government's Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, and a non-executive director of the Solicitors Regulation Authority. Vikas was awarded an MBE, member of the Order of the British Empire for Services to Businesses and Economy in Her Majesty's the Queen 2018 New Year's Honours List, and in 2021 became Deputy Lieutenant of the Greater Manchester Lieutenancy. Uh, the MBE, for those of us uh, listening, uh, is awarded uh, for outstanding achievement uh, or service uh, to the community, which has had long-term significant impact. Vikas has taught at universities around the world. He's a former president and sits on the board of Thai UK North, which is uh, you know part of the world's largest entrepreneur network, and was a digital advisor to the British Council. He's a published author. His 2021 book, Thought Economics, released. Uh, fe uh, features his interviews with people shaping uh, our, our century. You can follow Vikas on Twitter. What an early adopter at Mr. Vikas, M-R-V-I-K-A-S. Welcome, Vikas, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. Well, You've done a lot. I could have done a 20-minute bio already you. gone. Sorry? <laughs> I had to cut your bio because you've done a lot. I, I, know, I was listening to the bio thinking, I want to meet that guy sometime. It sounds pretty <laughs> awesome. It's one of those weird things, isn't it? Because, um, you know, when you're doing stuff, you're just getting on and doing stuff. And then every now and again, you know, you're asked to write a bio or you look back at your journey. You're like, really? Listen, because Did that I cut yours in like a quarter of what's available and what you've done. So I don't yeah. know if you sleep at night, but good job. <laughs> You know, the trick is always to have someone else write your bio because you don't know who that guy is. <laughs> so you're typically in that kind of situation. If, if I wrote it, I'd just be like, you know, cat dad, that's it. <laughs> that's my bio, done. Well, hey, let's let's jump into a piece of that. I mean, you were early. I mean, you were a tech entrepreneur uh, when you were 14 in the last dot-com boom, I think before yeah. in the last century. Let's put it in that perspective. Um, what What were you doing? Like, how'd you get in on this and what happened? So, so th this was a really strange story. So, so I, I grew up right next to an international airport, right? So all day, every day, I was watching planes go by. So all I wanted to be growing up was a pilot, right? Really expensive. And, you know, that, that just wasn't going to happen unless I either joined the Air Force or my parents paid for it. And, you know, we just, we were doing okay. You know, just an ordinary family, but that wasn't going to happen. So... I basically taught myself to, you know, build some basic websites, to do graphic design. I always loved to draw. And I picked up a phone book. I was 13. And I just started phoning companies saying, hey, can I do some work for you? The plan was really simple. Every two jobs I did, I would pay for one flying lesson, right? And then this was right at the start. So this was CompuServe era, right? So my first email address was like numbers at CompuServe.com. It was amazing. And bulletin boards and all that. It was just real kind of, you know, crazy hackery time. So then by the time I was 16, I now had employees in Manchester, London, New York, and Sydney. And it was, it was, it was crazy. Like it didn't feel crazy at the time, but in retrospect, it clearly was a bit odd. That's amazing. That's amazing. So your book, uh, so Thought Economics is a journal of intellectual capital uh, that's you know now read in over 120 countries. Uh, you started, it was founded by you in 2007. 
and has been recognized globally for the quality uh, of uh, the editorial content. As co-host of a weekly show, <laughs> I'm jealous with the folks you've interviewed. <laughs> the, 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 the entrepreneurs from Sir Richard Branson to Jack Walsh, Donna Karen, uh, you know, uh, Sir Ratan Tata, and the list goes on the Nobel Prize winners, the thinkers, artists, creatives, the sports entertainers. In your book, you include these incredible as Steve Jobs would say, folks that have put a ding in the universe. Yeah. Um, and so you had this privileged position of questioning the minds that matter on the biggest issues uh, that will face our, our society for the next hundred years and more. H how did this start? Why did it start? And uh, you know, you clearly have a passion to, to, to connect with some of the best and brightest and capture the essence of what matters in the conversation. And now you have this amazing book. So, you know, I think, you know, like, like the same with both of you, you know, when you're curious about people, it's, it's, it's like a drug. It's, it's really fascinating to learn about how, how people work. And in the early 2000s, the kind of business model of media was changing a lot. So you were moving from this kind of long form kind of journal style content to more sound bites, to more infographics. It was a different type of journalism and not, not one which I at the time connected with. So... I took it upon myself to start a little blog. And initially I was just interviewing, when I say little blog, by the way, it was thoughteconomics.blogspot.com. That's how little this blog was. And I literally started <laughs> off interviewing people that I've met at conferences over the years and shared a stage with here and there. And then one day I just, I just thought like, who can I get to? Like, this is like a challenge, who can I reach? And then fast forward a few months after that, so Thought Economics has been going maybe six months, and then I had a one, one and a half hour phone call booked in with Buzz Aldrin. And then I'm oh, like, wow, okay, wow. this is weird. Talk about a moonshot goal. Yeah. So, so, so then initially, initially, like, I'm not going to lie. The initial thing was just this, this weird, like goal to self of like, who can I get to? Who can I get to? But then all of a sudden the traffic's building. I'm finding that there's, there's a kind of like level of responsibility because all these people have changed the world in some way, like Maya Angelou, like Noam Chomsky. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to get an hour of their time to have a conversation, to ask the questions I want to. And so all that content's available for free. So all of the interviews I've ever done are available for free on my website at thoughteconomics.com. And then I just took the key learnings, like the most important things that any that the people had said and put them into, into the book. And that, that was the kind of purpose was this, was kind of life effectively life advice from you know the 120 people who've shaped our century unbelievable i'm gonna sorry ray i'm gonna ask you know i know it's a maybe difficult is there a particular cohort like is it, are the, are the, is it the entertainers or the ceos or the nobel prize winners which one of the cohorts is your favorite type of interview because you know you're going to walk yeah. away with nuggets of wisdom that could potentially change you as a person yeah. forever or you know I, I, i'm not going to ask you your favorite yeah. interview unless so, you want to tell us but so I, I've got to say it's the artists. And, and, the artists. And, yeah. and I was really surprised by that because I, I kind of didn't expect it. I didn't expect that that was the cohort of people that would like blow my mind. But then the more you get into it, the more it makes sense because, you know, we as a civilization exist within a context and that context is culture, right? Mm. And we have physics and maths and the sciences to explain the mechanics of society. But art is what we use to explain the context of our humanity. So if you really truly want to understand the world, you speak to the philosophers and the artists. So now when I'm teaching on MBA programs, I tell my students to read philosophy. When I think about 
the entrepreneurs that I've met who've made the biggest dent, a lot of them were liberal arts. So it kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. But but it was definitely the artists who I found were the most mind-bendingly awesome people to speak to. That's awesome. Parker Harris, founder of Salesforce, yeah. is a liberal arts major. So, you know, even the most successful tech company, well, Steve Jobs is an example, yeah. you know, liberal arts. So, yeah, that's that's amazing. <laughs> no, definitely a great point there. I'm a double hey, you know, I'm a boring electrical engineer, so sorry. <laughs> <Go> ahead, sorry. <laughs> well, hey, you know, you've been talking about, you know, your uh, teaching, and you've actually become much more active in teaching, whether at MIT Sloan in yeah. Europe and Manchester, um, and you get a sense of what the next set of entrepreneurs are like. So let's talk about that. Are they, are they liberal arts members? Are they more artists? Do they see the world in a different way? Yeah. Um, are there certain trends that you're seeing that seem different than it was when you were an entrepreneur in your teenage years? and uh, formative years. Massively, so so one of the biggest changes, when I started teaching on MBA programs, it was kind of interesting, like you, you got the students coming in, they're all obviously very good, very brilliant minds, and half of them wants to go work in Goldman Sachs, and then of the remainder, you had a few that wanted to be entrepreneurs and some of had family businesses, right? Over the years, it's really changed. So now, mm -hmm. so many more people are doing MBAs because they see it almost as a proving ground to learn enough about business to become an entrepreneur. And in the past two or two years, I'd say in particular, more and more brilliant, brilliant people are coming onto MBAs with a passion for social governance, with a passion for ESG, with a passion for social enterprise. Yeah. You know, I am absolutely convinced that the next generation of the wealthiest people in the world will be social entrepreneurs because they're solving the biggest challenges that humanity is facing and doing so profitably, fairly and equitably. And and that, to me, is so exciting right now that we have some of our best, brightest young minds passionate about social change as well as entrepreneurship. Wow. Wow. So the first trillionaire will be a climate change on the trailblazer, someone who's uh, yeah. you know, tackling big ideas. What about these digital natives? I mean, I'm a digital immigrant. I wasn't born with a device in my hand, I'm mobile or social. But I have a 10-year-old son, and he's a digital you know, native. Um, so, and he knows so much more than I do. <laughs> so, yeah. like he's, he's, you know, and he fact checks me, which I hate because when he talks sports, yeah. I'm like, oh, he's the greatest, you know, he's the so, greatest footballer. Yeah. And he's like, what are you talking about? Messi's got three times more goals and assists. Yeah. And I'm like, well, well, you know, so we're having debates about Pele versus Ronaldo. And, uh, so and this I'm is losing, really, I'm yeah. losing. <laughs> so this is really important, you know, so, so now, the students that are on MBA programs now, the ones who are starting now, a lot of them were digital natives. So yeah. their learning style is really different, different. So you almost have to deprogram that because as a digital native, you have the capacity to know a little bit about a huge number of things. So we have very wide interest, but what it stops you gaining is that depth of knowledge that makes you a domain expert or really mm. understand the context. So mm. I actually encourage students to put it down go to the library, read something, because not because I'm old school, but because actually we need to we need to learn the, the value of slow learning, the value of deep learning as a way of gaining a different level of expertise as to how something works. So just give you one example. You know, some of some of your viewers here might have might be familiar with anthropology, the study of human society. Most anthropologists clearly predicted the 0708 financial crisis based on human behavior. A lot of anthropologists have often said that that is the science that allows us to best understand bubbles and crashes in economic behavior. So that's something where you need to go read, you need to go learn. So I really encourage students to do that. 
Slow learning, deep learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of the best books, my favorite books, I've had to read two, three times. Because to yeah. be honest with you, at that you know, the first turn, I missed big concepts. I missed important intersections. So I I you know, you know we, I we need to go back to MBA. <laughs> we need to go back and get our MBAs, man. I think I, we're gonna have, I, we have fun I, in I, that I, class. I, I mean I, I, that's I, on my list. I, so, I would love to I sit it. and learn from Professor Vikas, uh definitely. Definitely would I've got to tell you a funny story. So um, I, I, I was talking at a conference and, and there was an MIT dean was there, there in Europe and that, that's how I got asked to do it. And I remember when they asked me and they were like, would you come and do some do something with us? And I'm like, yeah, why not? You know, Lisbon's two hours away. You know, we've got investments there. It's like the best tech center in Europe, in my opinion. And I love Lisbon. So, so I was like, this is cool. So I'll go anyway. So few conversations with faculty later. And then I get an email saying, dear professor, and I, and I replied and said, there must be some mistake here. I'm doing workshops. And they're like, no, 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 you're on faculty now. You're a professor. I'm like, why is this idiot a professor? You know, oh, I so see. it's, it's so, amazing. So, so even a brilliant author of an amazing book still has imposter syndrome. That's good to know. That's 100%. <laughs> I hope they paid you. the president of that club, by the way. Just <laughs> even today. I, I hope they paid you. You ended up on the roster, but hopefully you got paid. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow, yeah. wow. That's so good to hear. It's inspiring to hear someone who has had the privilege of having conversations with, again, the greatest that humanity has to offer across multiple disciplines, you know, still questions, you know, oh, what am I doing here talking to Bob well, Aldrin? <laughs> it happens all the time. Like, like probably the, the biggest moment of that was when I interviewed Maya Angelou. Because, you know, someone like that who who genuinely, you know, probably yeah. one of the most influential writers in, in, in history. So eventually I tested her office enough where they were like, you've got 10 minutes. Please stop emailing us. Right. So I'm like, I'll take it anyway. So then I'm waiting on the phone like for my Angelou to join. And then she joins a call. And I'm, and I'm literally like, is this really happening? And then 10 minutes goes. And then her assistant chimes in and says, you know, Miss Angelou, that's your 10 minutes. And she's like, we're having a great conversation. Let's just carry on. And I had an hour with her and, and I will cherish that hour amazing. forever. Like, wow. Amazing. Wow. Amazing. That is amazing. Wow. And that's what, that's what you mean. You know, we cherish this hour all the time because we get folks like you on and we're just like, why are we here? <laughs> no, truly, so, truly, truly. On every show. So I now but, can say, I know someone you know, who chatted with Maya for an hour. So you're, you're going to be name dropping the cast to get sweet credit for Ray and I. This is great. Yeah, I know. Because we use your name to get interviews. I mean, uh, we have to figure that out. So, But hey, you know what? what one important thing that you've been talking about is really about the state of mental health and well-being and where people are thinking at the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you're looking at entrepreneurs that are doing that, if you're thinking about what's going on, you know, uh, for entrepreneurs, like mental resilience, mental health. I mean, this, these are hard things to do because being an entrepreneur is lonely, right? You got a payroll. You got other people's lives in your hands. You can't really bounce all the ideas with everybody else. I mean, what do you do to make or give entrepreneurs the tools to allow them to be successful? So number one is realize that resilience is the single most important life skill you can have as an entrepreneur beyond anything else. And more so than that is realizing that you need to not buy into this hustle mentality, right? There are There is a small, tiny subset of entrepreneurs who can quite happily live on zero sleep and keep motoring and more power to them. But for the rest of humanity, 
you need to make sure you are on peak performance. That means eat right, sleep well, you know, train, meditation, whatever it takes. Because if you want to succeed in arguably one of the highest performance career choices that anyone can make, if you are not mentally and physically in peak form, it's just not going to happen. And that's one of the most, I think, underspoken things about the entrepreneurship journey is it's like, it's like running a marathon. It's, you know, it's a very, true. very hard journey. No one ever tells you to take care of yourself, right? As an entrepreneur, your goal seems to be to take care of everybody else. And it's a seasoned entrepreneur that comes back and tells you that. Yeah. Down to everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. And, you know, I learned that the hard way. I went through an absolute breakdown with my first business. It was, you know, it was a mess. Like I ended up being suicidal. It was, it was a horrible time. And, and no, that you're was right. the main thing. But the main thing I learned from that is if you want to succeed, you have to look after yourself and make sure that you are physically and mentally resilient. Take the kind of pressure that business is, is going to put on you today. So what's the startup scene like in Manchester today? Like who's creating startups? What type of you know companies are they creating? Yeah. Where are they in their journey? Do they, I mean, is it easy to get funding? So Ma Manchester, birthplace of the computer with Alan Turing, you know, we're, we're, and, and Alan Turing, we're very proud of that. But... Yeah. Manchester's a post-industrial place. It's a bit like going to Boston, right? And we have these amazing universities in Manchester outputting some of the world's top technology in artificial intelligence and material science and medical technology. They're getting funded, they're scaling out, they're creating billion dollar businesses. We also have Europe's number one center for e-commerce. You know, we have some of the biggest e-commerce companies in the whole of Europe based right here in Greater Manchester. And the spillover effect of that is creating amazing businesses in data sciences and behavioral sciences. So those are the sectors that are doing really well. What's really exciting now is until quite recently, Manchester had a big funding gap. And what investors are seeing now is that we have great startups, but not enough investment capital in the city. So we're now getting investor drop-ins from the Valley, from a lot from Texas, believe it or not, and also from across Europe and elsewhere coming into the city and making a base here. Oh, that's amazing. But Manchester's so, great. So, so Salesforce, my company, is the second most active CVC, only behind Google Ventures. We invest in a new startup almost weekly. So I'm going to make a note to uh, talk to the team and make sure we have great We'll host you. Listen, if you want to come over, we'll host you. We'll take you around. You know, and we also have... Um, one of the most interesting areas of Manchester is we have some of the best global development institutions in the world. So I'm the chair of an international NGO. I spun it out of the university and we've now scaled it to 30 countries. You know, we're using a lot of the tools of entrepreneurship now to scale up, you know, civil society work, building. So that NGO deals with, with war zones. So we're in 32 war zones now worldwide using entrepreneurship to rebuild lives and do peace building. And that's, again, a spin out from university work. You know, we're going to have to talk more about this and definitely catch you <laughs> offline. We are here with Vikas Shah, MBE, author of Thought Economics. Check out the book, Thank some you. of the most interesting interviews I've seen in print. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Vikas. And more importantly, he was early on Twitter. He was early on the Internet. He's really on every single trend. And I want to know what he's doing next. Yeah, he's a trailblazer. So thanks Thank a lot you. for being on the show. Happy Thank Friday. Thanks for having and, me. You know, Thank Thanks for skipping it. your wow. dinner for us. So, yeah. more, more. <laughs> <laughs> cheers! <laughs> wow, right. That, uh, was that an hour? Like, what's going on? I mean, <laughs> all three guests extraordinary. We could have talked to each one of them for an hour from business model innovation to scaling trust and sense of belonging to someone who's an extraordinary, extraordinary storyteller. 
uh, my takeaway with the cost was, you know, he's asking questions and these incredibly, uh, you know, uh, famous people are sharing their, you know, their lessons learned. But, uh, you know, he is an extraordinary storyteller himself. So I can imagine how Maya Angela would want to take 10 minutes to an hour because it's easy to talk to him. Uh, it probably started out as a, hey, can I have 10 minutes with you? And turned out to be an hour. I mean, with that amazing. kind of conversation, I mean, it's oh amazing. Oh, my God. Listen, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so jealous of the roster. I looked at his list. Oh, Ray, I mean, I mean, we do okay on Disrupt TV, but man, he is crushing it. Nah, so he anyway, got the anyway. wonderful yeah. guests. But is hey, it, who do it. we have for episode 240? We got something wanna, big coming wanna, up. We have an amazing CIO uh, who's been a CIO of startups to some of the biggest companies in the world, Ben Haynes. Right now, he's CIO advisor at the Lincoln Center of Performing Arts. He's one of the smartest CIOs that I know, and I have the good privilege of working with many CIOs, hundreds. We have Sabrina Horn, author of Make It, Don't Fake It, Leading with Authenticity for Real Business Success. And at my request, we're taking the last Yeah, we got a schedule show. change there. Hold <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, so, so the thing is, I, I read the book and I keep sending Ray questions and I have, you know, can you expand on this? Should we talk about this? And I'm actually using the book to shape my presentations because I have the good fortune of advising CXOs of some of the best and fastest growing companies. And it got to a point where I'm like, can we just put 20 minutes of disrupt aside so we can talk about your book? Because it's become a source of great learning for me. And I think it's a great use of our time. So get ready, Ray. I'm not going to share the questions in advance with you. And uh, we're going to spend the last 20 minutes oh my. Of next week going over complex ideas that you cover in this book so beautifully. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope our audience will find the segment to be incredible. You know, um, selfishly for me, I have a lot of questions and I want Ray to answer them. So that's what we're going to do next week. So anyway. Uh, well, hey, thank you, everyone. I just can't believe the week has gone by this quickly. Um, I think uh, we, we've seen a, it's it's interesting. I've been traveling. I'm here in Florida. I've started out in South Florida, Miami, early on the Bitcoin conference. That was a pretty amazing event. And then uh, we did a launch in Boca Raton. Uh, it's interesting to see what it's like when everything is open. I mean, it's a whole different world down here in Florida. California, we're double vaxxed and double masked out here. I, I mean, I, I don't see anybody with masks unless you're an indoor building or, or if you're required as we are here in Kennedy Space Center. So, but, uh, you know, uh, it's been crazy. But what about you? What's going on in your Envala? What what trends are you seeing? Things that we uh, felt that we got out of this episode? You know, I saw you at the money conference. You spoke with some of the biggest, you know, institutional investors and money experts. Uh, I saw you, you know, very engaged, one of the top influencers on social media with the Bitcoin conference held by uh, folks in Miami, which uh, where El Salvador uh, announced that Bitcoin is now legal tender. Uh, and uh, so my thinking is at some point in our circle, we know lots of cryptocurrency giants. Of course, we had Michael Saylor on the show a few months ago, and his company has invested close to $6 billion in Bitcoin on our balance sheet. Perhaps we should devote a theme, a show, to you know some of the titans in that space. So it's certainly an interesting space, and it's moving fast. And uh, it's volatile, but super interesting. No, definitely very interesting. I think we've got a number of folks uh, lined up for that uh, as a preview. So unfortunately, we're booked out eight weeks out these days, even 10 <laughs> weeks. So, uh, But if you've got a suggestion for a guest or for or our show, please let us know. Thank you so much. And of course, welcome to Disrupt TV. And every Friday, check us out, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll be here. So thanks a lot. Have a wonderful Friday. Thank you. Bye, Ray.